Hello, and welcome. And to those of you who celebrate the Lunar New Year tomorrow, happy Year of the Tiger. I am Glenn Tiffert, co-chair of the Hoover Institution's project on China's global shark power. And it is my pleasure today to introduce an extraordinary event that showcases how the causes of democracy, freedom, and human dignity ought to unite us all. Slightly more than 20 years ago, the late Congressman Tom Lantos, who represented the district immediately north of the Hoover Institution, spoke about China's pending bid to host the 2008 Summer Olympics. He said, the notion that an Olympic event, which is the celebration of human dignity, should take place in a police state and a dictatorship is repugnant. Today, those words are even more cogent than they were then. Only 12 years ago, Beijing's organizing committee threatened certain punishment to any visiting athlete who would dare violate China's restrictive norms on free expression. Today, the Foreign Correspondents Club of China, which, whose members will report on the games, issued its annual report in which a stunning 99% declared that reporting conditions in the country did not meet international standards. Xi Jinping leads the most powerful, assertive, and brazen authoritarian regime anywhere. Yet the world's democracies are divided over the myriad challenges that an emboldened, illiberal China poses to our interests and values. If experience teaches any lessons, Sochi in 2014, Beijing in 2008, Moscow in 1980, and Berlin in 1936, wishful thinking about such matters is not a plan and shrinking from this moment would be foolish. Today, we host a discussion about the hard choices before us, and we will conclude by taking questions from the audience, which you can pose using the Q&A button at the bottom of your screens. For more about our program, let me turn the floor over to my colleagues, Larry Diamond, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and my co-chair in this project on China's global shark power, and to Orville Schell, the Arthur Ross Director of the Center on US-China Relations at the Asia Society. Larry, over to you. <clears throat> Thank you so much, Glenn, uh, and welcome to all of you to this event, China on the Eve of the Winter Olympics, Hard Choices for the World's Democracies. The hardest and most urgent choices for the world's democracies right now, of course, <clears throat> lie in a different part of the world and are being pressed on us by a very different, aggressive, authoritarian great power, namely Russia. But whatever Vladimir Putin does or does not do to assault Ukraine in the coming weeks, the People's Republic of China will remain the most powerful rival to the United States and to our allies and partners among the free states of the world. China, of course, will be watching carefully what Russia does in Ukraine and most of all, how the US and its allies respond. But how far uh, China will go to press its nationalistic claims to Taiwan and the South China Sea uh, and to try to establish itself as the dominant power in the Indo-Pacific will be determined by many other factors, including the personal ambition of Xi Jinping, as well as political and economic conditions confronting his regime internally and internationally. So we think this is an important moment to ask generically three questions. What kind of regime has China become after nearly a decade of rule by Xi Jinping? Second, on this eve of the Beijing Winter Olympics, which China will try to spin into a great propaganda triumph? And with China's economy slowing, its real estate sector in crisis, its population vulnerable to 
a devastating surge of the coronavirus due to the regime's failure to effectively vaccinate its people? What can we expect from Xi's regime in the months and years ahead? And third, to the extent China continues its military expansion, internal repression, and bullying posture abroad, how should the U.S. respond? We begin to uh, seek answers to these questions with opening remarks by video from George Soros, a longtime observer of China. Mr. Soros is the founder of Soros Fund Management and the founder and chair of the Open Society Foundations. He began his philanthropic work in 1979 with scholarships for Black African University students in South Africa and for East European dissidents to study in the West. He's given away more than $32 billion to advance rights and justice around the world. George Soros's perspective on China has undergone a significant evolution since the early days of China's opening under Deng Xiaoping. Our frequent partner in the China Global Sharp Power Program, Orville Shell, who has been introduced uh, by Glenn, um, has observed this evolution, and I've asked him to say a word about it before we begin. So, Orville, over to you. Well, thanks, Larry, um, and welcome to you all. Uh, a quick thought uh, before we hear from uh, George Soros. I think in many ways, uh, George Soros's odyssey is exemplary and perhaps also uh, not too dissimilar from the kind of a, a process we all have been through over these last decades. Uh, remembering that uh, George left Hungary um, after the Second World War, uh, went to England, and it was there he developed a sort of notions of an open society and the, the importance of liberal democratic values. And he was quite, uh, quite uh, a militant about those, uh, a sentiment that I, I, I think many of us share. However, when Gorbachev came along and then when Deng Xiaoping's uh, uh, reforms came along, he evinced, I think, a really interesting flexibility, set up a foundation in China and many foundations in Russia to try to bend the metal of Leninism. And he was, in a certain sense, the engager par excellence. And uh, that, I think, bespoke of his willingness to respond and to meet the challenges as they evolved from these countries that he'd set out uh, in an alterable opposition to. But then along came Xi Jinping and uh, Putin, and the chemistry changed once again. And now I think you see George Soros uh, returning to a somewhat more implacable defender of open society values, uh, perhaps losing the hope, the trust, the ability to to imagine that reform could be a solvent that would change uh, these one-party systems. And here, I think this is where, in a certain sense, he, he and I think many of, of, of us are on the same trajectory and have had the same evolution. So uh, let's now hear from uh, George Soros himself. Hello, everyone. 2022 will be a critical year in the history of the world. In a few days, China, the most powerful authoritarian state, 
will be hosting the Winter Olympics. And like Germany in 1936, it will attempt to use the spectacle to score a propaganda victory for its system of strict controls. We are at or close to important decisions that will determine the direction in which the world is going. The German elections have already occurred. The French election will take place in April 2022. And in the same month, Hungary's voters, against all odds, may turn an authoritarian ruler out of power. Together with Putin's decision whether to invade Ukraine, these developments will determine the fate of Europe. In October, China's 20th Party Congress will decide whether to give Xi Jinping a third term in office as Party General Secretary. Then the U.S. will hold a crucial midterm election in November. Climate change will remain a paramount policy challenge for the world, but the dominant geopolitical feature of today's world is the escalating conflict between two systems of governance that are diametrically opposed to each other. Let me therefore define the difference as simply as I can. In an open society, the role of the state is to protect the freedom of the individual. In a closed society, the rule of the individual is to serve the interests of the one-party state. As the founder of the Open Society Foundations, obviously I am on the side of open societies. But the important question today is which system of governance is going to prevail? Each has strengths and weaknesses. Open societies unleashed the creative and innovative energies of people. Closed societies concentrate power in the hands of the one-party state. Those are the strengths. The weaknesses are more specific to local and regional conditions. For instance, the relationship between the European Union and its member states is still evolving. The EU ought to protect Lithuania, which recognized Taiwan, from an unofficial blockade by China. But will it? The victory of open societies can't be taken for granted. In a world teetering at the edge of military aggression, both in Ukraine and in Taiwan. President Biden has generally adopted the right policies. He told Putin, 
that Russia will pay a heavy price if he attacks Ukraine. But the U.S. will not go to war to defend Ukraine. If Putin attacks, the heaviest penalty will be created transatlantic cooperation. Biden won't make any unilateral concessions, but he's interested in finding a peaceful solution. The choice is up to Putin. At the same time, Biden has made it clear to Xi Jinping that if he uses force against Taiwan, China will have to confront not only the U.S., but a larger alliance composed of the AUKUS, that's Australia, United Kingdom, and the U.S., and the Quad, which is U.S., Japan, Australia, and India, together with a number of other potential allies who have not yet committed themselves to joint action, such as South Korea, and the Philippines. Japan is a country that has most fully committed to defend Taiwan. On the other hand, Xi Jinping has declared that he is determined to assert China's sovereignty over Taiwan by force if necessary. He is devoting enormous resources to armaments. Recently, he surprised the world by demonstrating a hypersonic controllable missile. The U.S. has nothing comparable and doesn't intend to compete. I think that's the right policy, because Xi Jinping's hypersonic achievement doesn't change the balance of mutually assured destruction that will stop the enemies from attacking each other. The missile is a mere propaganda victory. Still, war between the U.S. and its enemies has become more plausible, and that is not a pleasant subject to contemplate. Recently, I asked myself the question, how did the current situation arise? When I embarked on what I call my political philanthropy in the 1980s, American superiority was not in question. That is no longer the case. Why? Part of the answer is to be found in technological process, most of which is based on artificial intelligence, or AI, which was in its infancy in the 1980s. The development of AI and the rise of social media and tech platforms evolved together. This has produced very profitable companies that have become so powerful that nobody can compete with them. But they can compete with each other. These companies have come to dominate the global economy. They are multinational 
and their reach extends into every corner of the world. We can all name them. Facebook, Google, Apple, and Amazon. There are similar conglomerates in China, but their names are less well known in the West. This development had far-reaching consequences. It has sharpened the conflict between China and the United States and has given it an entirely new dimension. China has turned its tech platforms into national champions. The U.S. is more hesitant to do so because it's worried about their effect on the freedom of the individual. These differences, different attitudes, shed new light on the conflict between the two systems of governance that the U.S. and China represent. In theory, AI is morally and ethically neutral. It can be used for good or bad. But in practice, its effect is asymmetric. AI is particularly good at producing instruments of control that help repressive regimes and endanger open societies. Interestingly, the coronavirus reinforced the advantage repressive regimes enjoy by legitimizing the use of personal data for public control purposes. With all these advantages, one might think that Xi Jinping, who controls personal data for the surveillance of his citizens more aggressively than any other ruler in history, is bound to be successful. He certainly thinks so, and many people believe him. I should like to explain why that is not the case. That will require a thumbnail history of the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP. The first person to dominate the CCP, Mao Zedong, unleashed the Great Leap Forward that caused the death of tens of millions of people. This was followed by the Cultural Revolution that destroyed China's traditional culture by torturing and killing the cultural and economic elite. Out of this turmoil, a new leader emerged, Deng Xiaoping, who recognized that China was woefully lagging behind the capitalist world. His motto was, hide your strength and bide your time. He invited foreigners to invest in China then that led to a period of miraculous growth that continued even after Xi Jinping came to power in 2013. Since then, Xi Jinping has done his best to dismantle Deng Xiaoping's achievements. He brought private companies established under Deng under the control of the CCP and undermined the dynamism that used to characterize them. 
rather than letting private enterprise blossom, Xi Jinping introduced his own China dream that can be summed up in two words, total control. That has had disastrous consequences. In contrast to Deng Xiaoping, Xi Jinping is a true believer in communism. Mao Zedong and Vladimir Lenin are his idols. At the celebration of the 100th anniversary of the CCP, he was dressed like Mao, while the rest of the audience was wearing business suits. According to the rules of succession established by Deng Xiaoping, Xi Jinping's term in power ought to expire in 2022. But Xi, inspired by Lenin, has gained firm control of the military and all other institutions of repression and surveillance. He has carefully choreographed the process that will elevate him to the level of Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping and make him ruler for life. To accomplish this, Xi Jinping had to reinterpret CCP's history to show that it will logically lead to appointing him for at least another term. Xi Jinping has many enemies. Although nobody can oppose him in public because he controls all the levers of power, there is a fight brewing within the CCP that is so sharp that it has found expression in various party publications. She is under attack from those who are inspired by Deng Xiaoping's ideas and want to see a, a greater role for private enterprise. Xi Jinping himself believes that he is introducing a system of governance that is inherently superior to liberal democracy. But he rules by intimidation, and nobody dares to tell him what he doesn't want to hear. As a result, it's difficult to shake his beliefs, even as the gap between his beliefs and reality have grown ever wider. China is facing an economic crisis centered on the real estate market, which has been the main engine of growth ever since Xi Jinping came to power in 2013. The model on which the real estate boom is based is unsustainable. People buying apartments have to start paying for them even before they are built. So the system is based on credit. Local governments derive the bulk of their revenues from selling land at ever-rising prices. Eventually, prices had to rise beyond the level ordinary people could afford. That happened in the middle of 2021. 
By then, uh, the boom had grown to an unhealthy size. It accounted for nearly 30% of the economy, and it was eating up an ever-increasing amount of credit. After accelerating gradually, the property boom ended with a bang. Residential land prices in June 2021 were more than 30% higher than they had been the year before. The authorities tried to slow down the pace and ordered banks not to increase lending for residential real estate. The directive had the opposite effect from what was intended. It made it difficult for the largest and most leveraged developer, Evergrande, to meet its obligations. Subcontractors who didn't get paid stopped working, and people who had bought apartments started to worry that they may never receive the homes they were paying for. When the main selling season started in September, there were many more sellers than buyers. For a while, there were hardly any transactions at the advertised prices. But today, prices for both land and apartments are starting to fall. This will turn many of those who invested the bulk of their savings in real estate against Xi Jinping. Evergrande is now in receivership, and many other developers are facing the same fate. The creditors of Evergrande started fighting to improve their position in receiving bankruptcy distributions. The courts took charge, and their first move was to protect the subcontractors who employ some 70 million migrant workers. It remains to be seen how the authorities will handle the crisis. They may have postponed dealing with it for too long because people's confidence has now been shaken. Xi Jinping has many tools available to re-establish confidence. The question is whether he will use them properly. In my opinion, the second quarter of 2022 will show whether he has succeeded. The current situation doesn't look promising for she. Closely related to real estate, China also has a serious demographic problem. The birth rate is much lower than the published figures indicate. Experts calculate that the actual population is about 130 million lower than the official figure of 1.4 billion. This is not widely known, but it will aggravate the real estate crisis, produce labor shortages, fiscal strain, and a slowdown in the economy.
Xi Jinping has also encountered serious problems with vaccines. The Chinese vaccines were designed to deal with the Wuhan variant, but the world is now struggling with other variants, first Delta and now Omicron. Xi Jinping couldn't possibly admit this while he is waiting to be appointed for a third term. He is hiding it from the Chinese people as a guilty secret. All Xi Jinping can do now is to impose a zero COVID policy. This involves severe lockdowns at the slightest sign of an outbreak, but this is having negative effect on economic activity. And it is also inflicting severe hardship on the people who instantaneously quarantined wherever they are and their complaints can't be silenced. Omicron threatens to be Xi Jinping's undoing. It is much more infectious than any previous variant, although it's much less harmful to those who have been properly vaccinated. But Chinese people have only been vaccinated against the Wuhan variant, and Xi Jinping's guilty secret is bound to be revealed either during the Winter Olympics or soon thereafter. Omicron entered China mainly through the port city of Tianjin, which is 30 minutes by high-speed raid to Beijing. By now, it has spread to an increasing number of cities across China and is no longer under control. Since the Winter Olympics is Xi Jinping's prestige project, the administration is going to incredible lengths to make it a success. The competitors are hermetically sealed off from the local population, but it does make sense to continue this effort after the event. Citywide lockdowns are unlikely to work against a variant as infectious as Omicron. This is evident in Hong Kong, where the Omicron outbreak looks increasingly serious. Yet, the cost of zero COVID is rising every day, and the city is isolated from the rest of the world and even from China. Hong Kong highlights the wider challenge Omicron represents for Xi Jinping. Xi tried to impose total control, but he failed. Given the strong opposition within the CCP, Xi Jinping's carefully choreographed elevation to the level of Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping may never occur. It is to be hoped that Xi Jinping may be replaced by someone less repressive at home and more peaceful abroad. This would remove 
the greatest threat that open societies face today, and they should do everything within their power to encourage China to move in the desired direction. Thank you. Well, our, our thanks to George Soros for those um, very informative uh, and uh, forceful uh, analytic remarks. Now I'd like to introduce our <clears throat> two uh, panelists for the remaining hour. Matt Pottinger is a distinguished visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. He served from 2017 to 2019 as Senior Director for Asia in the National Security Council, and then from 2019 to 21 as the Deputy National Security Advisor to the President. In these roles, he led the administration's work on the entire Indo-Pacific region and was particularly responsible for its shift toward a more vigilant policy toward China. A fluent speaker of Mandarin, he reported from China for Reuters and the Wall Street Journal during the late 1990s and early 2000s. He then fought in Iraq and Afghanistan as a US Marine during three combat deployments between 2007 and 2010. <clears throat> Our second panelist, Oriana Schuyler Mastro, is the center fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford, where her research focuses on Chinese military and security policy, war termination, and coercive diplomacy. She is one of the leading experts on China's military and on China's regional and international behavior and ambitions. She's also a non-resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and a reserve officer in the United States Air Force for which she works as a strategic planner at the US Indo-Pacific Command. So welcome, Matt. Welcome, Oriana. Thank you for joining us. I'd like to start with China's internal politics. Um, this is obviously an important year for the regime, as George Soros noted. In a few days, uh, it's going to begin hosting the Winter Olympics. Uh, maybe more importantly, in October, the Chinese Communist Party will choose uh, its secretary general, and most people expect Xi Jinping will consolidate his dominance with the third term as paramount ruler. So uh, is that what you see happening? Do you agree with George Soros that um, uh, she will fail to be as paramount as Mao and Deng Xiaoping were? Uh, but is he really seeking total control? Matt, we'll start with you. Sure, no, thanks so much, Larry. It's great to be with all of you. Uh, I, I think that George Soros is exactly right that she is seeking total control. And, uh, and uh, we, we all hope that that effort uh, ultimately unravels as it has throughout history, um, certainly in the, in the democratic era of, of, since the United States has come into being. Um, autocracies of that nature have, uh, haven't had the same kind of longevity. And uh, this is a totalitarian ideology that he is imposing. Uh, and uh, in every sense of the term totalitarian. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think that, he, you know, what will happen uh, at the end of this year, odds are that right now, Xi Jinping has total control already uh, or near total control of some of the most critical uh, levers of power that he would need in order to insert himself into power for another term or for life. Um, you know, and let's face it, at this stage, 
when, when you've done what he's done to devour uh, huge components of his own party apparatus and destroy uh, uh, so many of his uh, even potential rivals, um, you don't leave power peacefully, uh, usually under those, those terms. You leave in handcuffs or in a coffin. Uh, so I think he's going to do everything possible to stay in power for life. Uh, he controls the military from what we see. He's been um, uh, throwing out and arresting and forcing. We've seen, uh, you know, suicides happening at, at alarming rates among senior officers. Uh, same thing with the Public Security Bureau, with the Ministry of State Security. So uh, a bottoms up kind of um, uh, a revolution seems uh, like, like a far stretch. But on the other hand, um, as we saw in at the close of the Cold War, it's usually fellow elites who turn on systems and throw out dictators. It's not usually a bottoms-up grassroots revolution. It's 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 fellow party members. It's uh, people who are disaffected among the elite. Uh, Oriana, if you could uh, engage the question as well, and also speak to the issue of um, the role of the military. Uh, might or might not play in any political succession struggle and whether from your um, analytic perspective, she right now has very firm control of the People's Liberation Army and its senior leadership. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, it's great to be here today. I don't disagree with anything that has been said in terms of the substance or the empirics behind what's happening in China. Uh, I would be extremely surprised if, if we don't see Xi Jinping uh, in power for, you know, at least another decade, definitely after next year. But I'm a bit more reluctant maybe than, than Matt or George Soros to make um, conclusions based on those facts and especially based on history. In particular, I'm working on a book right now that shows that we generally tend to underestimate adversaries and the effectiveness of their approaches when they're different than our own. So I'm not saying that what China is doing is in any way good. Uh, I am just reluctant to say it's going to blow up maybe the way that Matt has put it. So let me just give you a few examples of an alternative way of saying that even if Xi Jinping stays in power, that this might be this might make China more powerful and be able to compete with the United States in a more effective way. So what we mean by consolidating power, let me just very briefly say, before Xi Jinping, factionalism was a defining feature of Chinese elite politics. They had this idea of democracy you know, by consensus, the leader was first among equals, you know, Jiang Zemin or Hu Jintao, of course, they had more power, but the other elites also had power. And there was a very, um, you know, a fruitful study of the various factions in China. So before Xi Jinping, you would have like a Shanghai clique, you had the, pre the princelings who were the kids of former elites, Hu Jintao had a faction, Jiang Zemin had a faction, um, you know, and, and all these different factions, you had, you had groups of Communist Party leaders that rose up through the Communist Party Youth League. And these factions would go behind different leaders. And interestingly, in China, it wasn't really based on policy. It's not like they had disagreements maybe over economic reform, but it was largely based on where you were from and where you worked. Xi Jinping, when he came into power, he it's not that he eliminated all of them. He basically co-opted most of them. He was a princeling himself. So he you know, co-opted that. He spent time in Shanghai, so he co-opted that. And the ones that were hard to co-opt, then he did sort of 
make them ineffective. So we haven't seen a leader as powerful as Xi Jinping, but it doesn't, I think there's two things that could make China more difficult to deal with, even in spite of his desire for total control. The first thing to note is, while it's true that his anti-corruption campaign led to, you know, a lot of, it was one of the largest ones in decades, a lot of military leaders were very resentful about it. It did help professionalize the military. The military used to be this sort of pay to promote system. The military was too busy running karaoke bars than to train for actual things. You know, Xi Jinping, he was, everyone was corrupt, of course. And he was able to choose, you know, basically the leaders who are not on board with professionalization, who did not want to push through the reforms that were necessary to be able to conduct the types of operations that take Taiwan by force because they had their own little fiefdoms, they had to go. So of course, part of it was all this, this politics, but part of it has now made the military more competent and more professional. And at least at the lower levels of the military, there's more trust in their leadership because they feel like their leadership didn't just pay to get there. So I am you know, concerned that this sort of total control has also led to some improvements, especially in their military capabilities. And along those lines, I'm not sure it's bad for China overall. What's bad for China is that Xi Jinping doesn't set up a successor. And that's something that many people are watching. If party Congress after party Congress, he doesn't promote people that could eventually challenge him, then even if he stays for life or not, you know, whatever it goes, um, it's not going to be good for China when he leaves if no one is prepared to take over the reins. So I think that's the big question. Is Xi Jinping so insecure that regardless of how long he stays, he's going to make sure that no one else has the power base and capability to run that country? If, if that's true, then we are going to have this type of implosion, I think, that Matt's laying out. But it's not necessarily the case that Xi Jinping's personal desire for total control makes China easier for the United States to compete with. Matt, uh, I'd like to, add, before I move on, because I'd like to talk about the role of ideology, but before I do, I'd like to um, uh, ask you if you've got any uh, thoughts in response to uh, the points Oriana's made. And I'd like to note for our audience, since someone asked what is meant by the third term, isn't she ruler for life? Well, <laughs> under Zhang uh, Zemin and under Hu Jintao, that's not the way it was. There was uh, a, 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 an institutional rule for rotation of power after two terms uh, as president and presumptively after two uh, parallel five-year terms as secretary general of the Chinese Communist Party. So she has wiped that out, of course, and has now prepared himself for a third term, and as you note, Oriana, possibly a fourth and so on. I've even heard speculation uh, that he might be grooming his daughter someday to succeed him, and that one of the things we should watch for is whether she's elevated to the Central Committee. But Matt, any thoughts on on all of this? Including yeah, professional. It's funny. I, I hadn't heard that about his daughter, but uh, but it, it wouldn't be out of line with some of the things that we heard see talk about late last year, which was the idea of red bloodlines. This idea that only people who are directly descended from the revolutionaries who founded the party and won the revolution are really entitled to power. Everyone else is just hired help. And, and, and so that he, he became uh, much more open about this uh, around the time of the, the historical, uh, you know, the, the party centenary and the sixth plenum last year. Uh, so, uh, but look, 
or, Oriana's correct that um, uh, that uh, for a time, this consolidation of all of this power uh, towards very specific ends, the, the most important one is to keep himself in power and the party in power, but also to try to, to do um, extremely big, dangerous things like take Taiwan, annex Taiwan, uh, push democratic countries farther and farther out of the sphere of influence that he wants to build, similar to Putin. It's why they are mutual admirers of one another. Uh, there, there will be a time where things are particularly dangerous for the rest of the world because that mix of paranoia and ambition make a very combustible brew. And that's why we're looking at a decade right now that is going to be extremely challenging for all of us as a result of the, that paranoia and ambition that she is pursuing before I think eventually um, uh, 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 history catches up in ways that uh, uh, don't, don't uh, uh, give them the, the uh, infinite run <laughs> that I think he's imagining right now. Uh, we're we're going to come to paranoia, power, and ambition. But first, I'd like to uh, ask you each uh, about an element of Xi's rule and uh, Xi's strategy that seems to be rather striking, which is the kind of revival of uh, ideology and ideological discipline and indoctrination penetrating through uh, all of the different institution of Chinese society. And uh, related to that, the enforcing of a kind of more aggressive supremacy of, of the party over everything. Um, and of course, the promotion of Xi Jinping thought, whatever that is. So uh, Oriana, we'll start uh, with you. How seriously should we take Xi's promotion of ideology and do you see him taking China back in some way to the Maoist era? So I see it a bit like he's taking China back, but also that he's catering to a domestic demand. So I don't think it's only the case that he is sort of using ideology as an instrument for power. I think he noticed that in some pockets of Chinese society, there was discontent with inequality, you know, that some Chinese people were really rich and others were not. Those anti-corruption campaigns we talked about were extremely popular with a lot of Chinese people. They loved, you know, they would do these big news broadcasts of like, you know, no one is safe from Xi Jinping. It doesn't matter how rich you are, how powerful you are. You know, if you're not a man of the people, you know, you're going to go down type of thing. Even, you know, Xi Jinping has, has made it so you can't use a lot of Western texts in universities. Of course, professors don't like this. And I have some colleagues who have complained. I had a friend who was high up at one of the universities and he resigned his position because he was like, you know, we complain about committee meetings. He was like, I don't have time for all this Xi Jinping thought that I'm forced to do as like the dean of this school. But at the same time, there's, you know, authoritative polling from, you know, places outside of China that says that the average Chinese person, you know, distrusts these kinds of foreign influences and was supportive of these types of ideological crackdowns. So I think he goes up there and he wears the Mao suit and he, he tells the Chinese people, you know, if foreigners try to bully them, you know, we're going to, we're going to crack, the, you know, their heads will be bloodied on the great wall built by billions of Chinese people 
because of the, the, those are popular messages. Now, of course, part of it is the propaganda and the patriotic education campaign that's gone on very strongly since Tiananmen that points to you know foreigners exploiting Chinese weakness and things like that. Um, so I, I do see that ideological component much stronger. I think you know in my own work, people always say like, "Oh, Xi Jinping just said that." You know, don't listen to what Xi Jinping says. And so I did a very mini study in which. I was so annoyed by this response. I did a study of all the things Xi Jinping said he was going to do and then how he did all those things. And so I think we have to take what he says very seriously. And so if he says, you know, I'm going to, you know, the, the party is paramount and, you know, party has to control everything. You know, we can't have national rejuvenation until, you know, foreign forces are out until we have Taiwan. I mean, I think that's what he's trying to do. Uh, and, and so ideology is definitely playing a much stronger role in this competition because of it. You know, the Oriana's point about how we need to take what he says seriously, I couldn't agree with more. And by the way, we haven't, by and large, in the West taken seriously what Xi Jinping says. Xi Jinping gave what was probably the most important speech of the last several months and published it in a Chinese uh, theoretical magazine on the 1st of January this year. I haven't seen a single news article about this speech. He, he gave a decoy speech uh, you know, a couple of weeks later to Davos, which did get coverage where he talked about win-win cooperation and globalization. But if you go and you look at what he's telling his own people when he assumes mostly correctly that we're not paying attention, uh, let me just read you, you know, a couple of the, uh, the things that he said. Um, he praised Mao Zedong at length. He talked a lot about the Korean War and going to going making the decision that Mao made to fight the United States preemptively. Uh, he talks about uh, preemptive war and by quoting Mao the following: "By starting with one punch, one hundred other punches can be avoided." He talked about the spirit of struggle against uh, uh, the United States. He, you know, in a speech that was first given uh, secretly to the sixth plenum late last year, which was a review of the entire history of the party for the last hundred years, uh, he did not mention Deng Xiaoping except once. He mentioned, he mentioned Deng to honor his decision to gun down the student demonstrators in 1989. He said he took the decisive necessary action to, to rescue the party uh, and rescue the country. So, so this is, this is the role that ideology plays uh, is very much about uh, preserving the longevity of the regime with him as the core. Uh, he's a very close student of Joseph Stalin. He has constantly, like Stalin, purged from within, purged the party, kept people off balance. And his, his short term for that is struggle, struggle. He says in his speech, uh, we must grasp the historical characteristics of the new great struggle, carry forward the spirit of struggle, grasp the direction of struggle, the initiative in struggle, and the will to struggle. He says struggle another 10 times, you know, without catching a breath, and finishes by saying no matter how strong the enemy is, no matter how difficult the road, how severe the challenge, the party is always completely without fear, never retreats, does not fear sacrifice, and is undeterrable. And he then he even quoted Mao saying, do not hesitate to ruin the country internally in order to rebuild it anew. That sounds like a pretty important speech to me. I haven't read anything about it in the English language, but um, that gives you a flavor of the role that ideology plays today. Well, uh, I hope you will uh, 
uh, will of course uh, make a record of this uh, available online, but I hope you will uh, share his uh, uh, thinking and your interpretation of it uh, more widely because this is uh, pretty striking. I want to ask about a parallel uh, dimension of how she is changing China uh, ideologically uh, and politically uh, in terms of the rise of Chinese nationalism and both his own efforts to stoke it uh, and what seemed to be a, a kind of parallel groundswell of it uh, that may not be entirely because of the stoking but because of other developments as well. And then, of course, there is the rapid uh, expansion and modernization of the People's Liberation Army, the, uh, which has the fastest growing budget of any military in the world. So <laughs> you've got nationalism and ex expanding military power. History tells us uh, that's not a good combination. Uh, Oriana, uh, we'll start with you. What do you think he's He's seeking here. What is China seeking with these two uh, developments? Well, let me build off what Matt just said when he concluded with Xi Jinping's remarks about how the party will be undeterrable. One of the things I often say, and especially in the region, is we can either have a China that is deterred and unhappy or undeterred and happy. You cannot, you cannot have both. Right. So a lot of countries are afraid of provoking or upsetting China. But the bottom line is, and they've written extensively about this in a lot of more authoritative military texts, they want strategic space, which basically means they want the opportunity to do whatever they want, whatever they decide to want to do it. And no one should say or do anything about it, whether it's in the political, economic or military realm. In my discussions with Chinese colleagues, this is how they think of great powers, that great powers get to do whatever they want with no consequences. Now, I always respond, you know, great powers are ones that no matter what they do, everyone has something to say about it. So I think they have that a bit backwards. But the bottom line is they do not want to, when we, we look at a lot of the lessons of history, right, Taiwan Strait crisis of 1996, the United States sends in a carrier, you know, battle group, and, and we deter that crisis. But what China learned from that was not, we should be nicer, what they learned is we do not want to be deterred. And so part of the military buildup, they realized they had no options, right? When we send aircraft carriers near China for decades, they had no options. And so they said enough and they developed the ability of having an anti-ship ballistic missile that hits carriers. So now the United States in a crisis would be much more reluctant to bring one closer. As you mentioned, their military spending increased by 740% in, in the past decade. And a lot of that has been first to ensure that they have the capabilities to keep the United States out. You know, the, to make sure the United States cannot fight wars the way the United States wants to fight, whether it's hitting bases in the region or, you know, sinking U.S. ships or disrupting satellites. The bottom line is that gives the United States a lot of pause. And so moving forward, I think that's what they want to do. They want the party gets nationalism by standing up to bullies. And so part of the military's role is to stand up to the bullies, which is primarily the United States and its allies. It's interesting. A lot of people in the region think the principal bully right now is uh, the Chinese Communist Party state and its People's uh, Liberation Army. Matt, uh, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that keeps Xi up at night is his own people. 
right? It's uh, the, the, you you can never paper over the lack of legitimacy, even with um, with with uh, short periods of great achievement. Um, you can't paper over the fact that it's just not a democratic system that no one actually selected uh, uh, the the. Chinese leader to serve as a dictator. So if you look at some of his recent discussions, some of the recent comments he's been making, he's talking a lot about color revolutions, which is unusual. China usually doesn't talk about it to describe a a contemporaneous event. That's been Putin's line. That's right. So that's the common denominator in a sort of of proto-quasi-alliance between uh, 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 Putin and Xi, and to some extent the Ayatollah uh, in, in Iran, but when when you saw in Kazakhstan uh, the, the episode a few weeks ago that led the the leader there Tokayev to gun down demonstrators, in fact to send out a warning that he was going to shoot uh, shoot to kill, that those were the orders, and hundreds were were killed, thousands were arrested. Xi Jinping sent a, sent him a congratulatory note. Uh, say, for having the will uh, to, to sort of man up and, and uh, put down a color revolution. She actually used the term color revolution. So there's this idea of, of trying to push, um, uh, color revolution is, is also really a euphemism for, uh, for democracy, right? They want to push that as far away as they can. They don't want it on their borders. And increasingly, they don't want it even on their maritime uh, frontier. And so that's, that gives us some sense of, of what the objectives are with all of the, uh, uh, you know, the, the perceived bullying that's coming from China that you mentioned there. Does that help us understand why China has snuffed out even the semi-democracy rule of law autonomous system that existed in Hong Kong? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, they, they couldn't even bear the idea that this golden goose where just a massive flow of investment was coming into China, it was a place where all the world wanted to, wanted to park itself in order to exchange in business and trade and ideas with China. They could not stand the idea that people would be demonstrating in favor of continued rule of law, essentially. And that, and that, that, that autonomy, which is, which isn't, national sovereignty, they're still, they're still part of China. Many Hong Kong people I know are very proud to be Chinese and to be proud to be part of China. But as they started to encroach on the rule of law to start wiping out those civil liberties, uh, people took to the streets and China thought it was worth strangling that golden goose. And believe me, Hong Kong is uh, will be out for the count, I'm afraid, uh, in order to um, uh, preserve that, that uh, you know, satiate that paranoia that they feel up in Beijing. Can I just say one thing about Hong Kong, which I think is just interesting, you know, I, you know, I look at it the same way Matt does, and I'm sure many in China do as well. But when I was in, in China around that time, one of the arguments was that she was actually showing like how not aggressive he was, because now that the China, the Chinese military is, you know, one of the most powerful militaries this world has ever seen. And he didn't roll into Hong Kong with tanks, right? He used the rule of law and things like that to sort of crush the aspirations of the people of Hong Kong. But on the other side, like he could have rolled in with tanks. This could have been, you know, and at least in the United States, a lot of us were sort of worried and waiting for that of when were people going to be gunned down in, in the streets. And so I think that also leads to this alternative or not an alternative thing, but just the fact that nowadays China has so many sources of power, of influence and coercion, 
right? It's not necessarily the case that they always have to use force, but the outcomes can be just as bad. So I have this old research project about revisionism in which I try to make this argument that sometimes the problem is what China wants, but sometimes it's how they try to go about it. In the case of Hong Kong or South China Sea, a lot of territorial issues, the problem is more what they're trying to achieve and less the actual tactics they use to get there because they do have some worse options, you know, for the United States to get there. Well, let's talk about one of the scariest things that uh, it looks like they're trying to achieve, which they keep referring to, and which you have referred to, Oriana, which is their ambition to um, complete the ending of a century of humiliation by, quote, reunifying uh, Taiwan with the motherland, end quote, or however they phrase it from time to time. Uh, uh, I think there's an interesting and haunting parallel here uh, with Ukraine in that both um, uh, countries, if I may say that, Taiwan and Ukraine, are democratic models uh, that um, pose a challenge, frankly, to the authoritarian great powers that neighbor them. Uh, And each of those authoritarian great powers does not really recognize the existence of these countries as legitimate uh, independent countries um, or independent political systems or whatever language you want to use. So, uh, Oriana, you've written that China may be preparing to use force to resolve its dispute with Taiwan. We're not talking about the police and judicial uh, prosecutions uh, that were deployed in Hong Kong. We're talking about military action and that may use it sooner than most people have imagined. So why don't you spell out your current thinking on that and then I'll ask uh, Matt to speak to this as well. So I, I think in general, there's so much wishful thinking about China, you know, that it's like people hold on to certain ideas like, China wants to avoid a war no matter what. You know, and my position has always been like, of course, China wants to achieve all of its goals without fighting a war if that's possible. But there are things it's willing to fight a war over. And it's been extremely clear, you know, Xi Jinping and even predecessors have been extremely clear that one of the most important goals of the party is this unification with Taiwan. Previously, they did not have the military capabilities to do it, right? Of course, 10 years ago, if Taiwan had declared independence, China would have thrown everything they had at it, but it it wasn't, you know, it wasn't going to go well for them. Nowadays, you know, they do have the military capabilities to launch that type of assault. And there are certain situations in which they would win. So when I talk to the Chinese military, they always assume U.S. military intervention. So all this sort of dancing that the U.S. is doing by saying, like, we will defend Taiwan, like, I don't think that impacts Chinese thinking at all. I think most of their planners say, okay, we have to assume the United States is going to try to come to Taiwan's aid. How can we beat them anyway? And a lot of it has to do with timing, I mean, and and problems with U.S. force posture in Asia. A lot of people don't realize that the United States can be the most powerful military in the world and still lose that war, largely because of geographic limitations. You know, we have one air base in the vicinity of Taiwan and the Chinese have 39. Um, And if we don't listen to what Xi Jinping has said, we also have never we have not been serious enough about this rebalancing towards Asia. A lot of our military focus has been in the Middle East. And now there's a discussion of reinforcing our position in Europe 
To which I just say, no, we have to have strategic discipline. You know, I've heard people in the government be like, we'll take care of this Ukraine thing first and then we'll do Taiwan. I'm like, we cannot continue to do this because even if you only send, you know, 10,000 Americans to try to help enhance deterrence with that comes, you know, logistics, folk, we don't have, you know, with that comes dedication of munitions, national assets, like space assets, like we cannot continue to do all these things at the same time. We have to focus on Taiwan. The one thing I want to say, I think there are, there is this, um, when I made this argument that China was seriously considering using force, this was largely because my Chinese counterparts started telling me this. And so then, then I started looking into the details, even moderate voices in China were like, Taiwan's never going to become a part of mainland China just because of economic ties. Peaceful reunification is not working. And publicly, people started to talk about how it's not working. And given everything we've said about Xi Jinping, you can take away one thing, which is no one is going to publicly come out and say one of the most important policies of the Communist Party is not working if that line of argument does not have top leadership support, right? Those people aren't being thrown in jail. They are top party people saying it's time for armed reunification. Now, one caveat to this is I think Xi Jinping can stay in power forever and not take back Taiwan. My argument is not based on kind of like a Xi Jinping feels like he has to do it to consolidate power. It's more of an ambition thing. If something is right there, and you can grab it and he can be the guy to do it. And his military is telling him he can do it at very low cost because I know George Soros said, apparently the quad and AUKUS and everyone has committed to fighting with the United States. This is the first I've heard of that. I have zero expectation that like India or even Japan, maybe, you know, Australia has fought with us since every war. So maybe the Australians, but everyone else has largely signaled until recently, there's been some optimistic points, but they've largely signaled that they're out. So I don't think the cost would be too high. So given all of this, I just think it's tempting for Xi. He doesn't have to do it, but man, wouldn't that be a good pin to put on his mouth suit if he accomplished it? And for those reasons, I, I worry about deterrence across the Taiwan Strait. I'm sensing a shift in the way uh, Japan is looking at this uh, with growing alarm. But Matt, uh, uh, please give us your views on this. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right, Laird, about Japan uh, now talking openly. I mean, things that you wouldn't have heard or imagined hearing senior Japanese officials or, or a recently uh, retired prime minister, Prime Minister Abe, saying that, uh, uh, or in the case of a former prime minister, Aso, um, uh, saying that it's an existential threat to Japan. You know, you've got the now vice premier uh, saying that this is an existential threat to Japan. You've got people talking about the sense of urgency, beginning uh, to do war gaming and closer coordination across, not just with the United States, but across alliances. So Japan is talking much more closely uh, and doing some uh, initial planning with the Australians um, so I, I think I think that Oriana is very much right about the the ambition piece of Xi Jinping that that it's not necessarily that he needs Taiwan but that he will be willing uh, to uh, take advantage of, of what he'll probably perceive as a closing window of opportunity uh, you know a decade from now so so we're really in that window for a potential conflict already. Uh, sometime over, you know, the next handful of years. Um, you know, people 
have, have mentioned a lot of different reasons why they don't think China would do this. They've said, well, look, China hasn't fought uh, a, a real war since they uh, did their punitive uh, campaign against Vietnam at the end of the 70s. I mean, those of us who've, who've served and fought, I, I think, have a sense of, of the history that uh, sometimes battle-hardened uh, forces are much more clear-eyed about the limitations of power and also uh, don't become overconfident in, in planning. And when you haven't fought for decades, as the PLA has, you start to become really enamored with um, uh, the, uh, you know, the idea that plans are going to go according to the way that they're written, the idea that wars can be fast, uh, short, and decisive. How many times did the United States go to war saying we'll be home by Christmas, you know, <laughs> only to find that, you know, 20 years later, uh, oh, that Christmas, right? So China needs to also understand that they could be, um, uh, uh, if they do make a fateful decision to go after Taiwan, it very much could lead to a broader uh, regional war that's going to pull in a lot of countries, and it's not going to be short uh, or sweet. Okay, one last question before I hand it over to Glenn <clears throat> for uh, his question and our audience questions. Um, underlying increasingly uh, the battle for military superiority is a battle for technological superiority. And there is a broader competition going on uh, in terms of science and technology in fields like artificial intelligence, semiconductors, where we have a Hoover Institution Asia, Asia Society working group looking at this, autonomous vehicles, biotech, all, all sorts of things. Uh, George Soros uh, mentioned hypersonics. So um, how do you assess that? Uh, Matt, we'll start with you. And what does the US need to do to maintain its technological edge? The first thing that we need to understand is that semiconductors are the pillar on which all of those other technologies you mentioned are based, okay? Whether it's, uh, you know, autonomous systems, synthetic biology and, and the uh, gene engineering, um, uh, you know, artificial intelligence, uh, all of this stuff is built on a nation's ability to um, uh, control or at least have uh, a certain degree of independence in high-end semiconductor manufacturing and be able to ensure the, the security of those supplies. It's no coincidence that Beijing is putting a hell of a lot of its chips on, on no pun intended, <laughs> on that sector, right? You've got, uh, you've seen them really turn away from consumer facing uh, uh, sort of technology, which was so incredibly uh, successful for Chinese entrepreneurs and it, it, it was successful for Chinese consumers. Uh, Xi Jinping has made clear he doesn't really care about the consumer-facing stuff, except to the extent that that um, it, it helps him increase his data picture of his own population and what they're thinking about uh, and, and what they're doing. Uh, he's putting money into hard technologies, starting with hundreds of billions of dollars in semiconductor manufacturing. The United States has to cut off the flow of expensive powerful American equipment and the equipment of a very small number of allies, as well as the design software that would give China the ability to break out 
and, and establish dominance over the global industry. We're doing that, that at the very bleeding cutting edge of technology, but most military and dual use technologies aren't at that cutting edge. They include a few generations of older technology, which we're gladly selling uh, equipment to, to give China the, the opportunity to break out in ways that could actually, in a jujitsu move, make us wholly dependent on China for our entire technological uh, ecosystem and future. I think we should continue selling chips to China, except for the really cutting edge ones that could be used in supercomputers and advanced weapon systems. Sell them the chips, but don't sell them the means to make their own chips. We're not doing that yet. Oriana? I, you know, I have very little uh, you know, smart response to what Matt said. You know, I completely agree. I think a lot of it has to do with control of what leaves the country. I get so frustrated. You know, I get that companies have economic incentives, but as someone you know, who's 48 hours deployable. I'm like, do you want your company to be on the other end of, of what is going to kill Americans? Like, yes or no. Like those, to me, I, I don't want politicians to use this as an excuse to protect their own, you know, economic interests in whatever state. I think the question should be like, does this enhance the lethality of their military or their competitive edge in certain ways that hurt U.S. national security? And if the answer to that is yes, then even if it comes at a significant economic cost to the United States or our companies, like we need to stop, you know, selling this stuff to China. But, you know, that I think is only one small part. We, to be competitive, it's not just reducing what China can do, it's also improving what we can do. And my knowledge in this is very limited. It just comes from the fact that I have, you know, two very small kids. So I spend a lot of time, you know, reading on like how to make sure that they are smart, right? Like, how can I make sure of this? And so I read all these studies about, you know, preschool, how important preschool is and how, you know, our, our country still has no public preschool. We, we don't invest in human capital. You know, I am constantly really just curious of why, like, where are my tax money? Like, how are the schools not so much better based on all the money that I pay in property taxes here in California? I don't know anything about education, but it seems to me that a lot of what's going to make the United States competitive is a investment in our public infrastructure and our human capital, whether it be reforming the immigration system, which in my mind, if a Chinese person can come here, spend one year as a postdoc and is so brilliant that they can go back and build up a whole nother lab, like we should be trying to get them to stay here. So all the things that have made us competitive in the past, which is largely sort of that openness of society, and investing in our people, seems like that's what we need to be doing. And the Biden administration is taking that kind of building homes type of thing seriously. I mean, I, I don't think seriously enough. I mean, I always half joke, like, I don't care the political party, whoever actually like, you know, makes my daycare expenses tax deductible and invests in education for my children. Like that's the party I'm voting for. But, but that's not the discussion. You know, that's not where we're going with this uh, though. I think that's probably where we should be going. If we think freedom is what makes us competitive, um, you know, we have to, we have to create a situation which we're incentivizing the right types of competition, the right types of companies, and that we have the people here that have the brain power and the training to do it. All right. Let's uh, thank you both. Let's continue the discussion now with uh, Glenn Tifford. Go ahead, Glenn. Thank you very much, Larry. Uh, before posing my question, because we've had some questions in the Q&A, I just want to underscore that this event is being recorded and will be archived and posted to Hoover's YouTube channel within about a day or two, so you can spread the word if you'd like others to be able to watch it. 
Now, Oriana and Matt, I think Oriana's uh, last remarks were a great uh, transition to the question that I'd like to pose to both of you. For most of the discussion, we've been talking about the bilateral relationship and largely in terms of military competition. I'd like to widen the aperture and think about geostrategic and geopolitical competition in other parts of the globe. What can the United States do in the near term, medium term, and long term to ensure that we are more a more compelling alternative to what China is offering in the realm of ideas, but also in the more transactional realm of trade, investment, and economics. Uh, many other countries around the world, particularly in Africa and Latin America, are deeply attracted by what China is dangling before them. How do we compete better against that? What are your ideas? So we can go ahead and start and say that I don't think China is out competing us. The United States is not competing in these areas. We are largely absent, especially from the developing world. I'm constantly surprised, like, you know, administration after administration, I'm always, you know, Xi Jinping has been very focused on trying to build a power base in the developing world and and also not even just political making sure they vote with him you know in the UN but also economic you know part of his strategy to not be so dependent on the United States and allies for trade and stuff is to build up the markets in a lot of these developing places. If you look at how much effort you know the the US strategy I would largely characterize post war post cold war strategy as pick a handful of countries that are important and as long as they're with us you know that's fine. You know, we got Japan, we got Australia, UK, sometimes Germany. Okay, that's the way, then, then we can win this competition. But in my mind, numbers now matter. So, you know, President Obama visited more African countries than any president before him. And I think he visited 11. You know, Xi Jinping has visited something like 38. Um, they're constantly, hold, you know, so in my experience, and this is largely anecdotal, I haven't done a large data study on this, but a lot of times when countries have the alternative, they choose the United States, but, you know, a large part when, for example, with infrastructure projects, the United States might've done a feasibility study and been like, we can build you this port, but no one's going to use it. So it's not worth the money. So we're not building it for you. Right. And the Chinese don't care. They're like, oh, if it makes you happy, we build this port, we build this port. So, you know, there's a number of things. I mean, one, the United States absolutely has to have a strategy and be engaged with the developing world. You know, when's the last time a president hosted, you know, U.S. president hosted leaders from from some of these countries? I think hardly ever. While you know, leaders meet with Xi Jinping all the time from from very small nations. So this is the first the first thing. And the second thing is again, it's a bit outside my area, but my discussions about you know U.S. development assistance, foreign aid, is that you know. Congress basically decides where this money goes, uh, and it's largely based on pet projects. For whatever reason, the United States is mainly interested in healthcare and medical and not other aspects of development assistance. And so USAID and other government agencies don't have the flexibility to sort of meet demand on, on the ground uh, because of how we do aid in our political process. So things like that, like, I don't think military is the answer. It's just in some cases the easiest the president can easily switch where our military forces can go. And as much as this administration has said, like they want the United States to be the new economic leader, like a U.S. president can as easily decide your number one trading partner is going to be the United States, right? Like that largely depends on U.S. companies, U.S. individuals, you know, competitive advantage, all these other things. And so that's why I always go to the military answers, because there are things that can be done right now and that the executive can largely decide. 
while I think the e- absolutely the economic components of this um, are probably even you know more important for the great power competition in, in some ways. I just think they're harder to control. Larry, you know, I, just to to complement some of the things that Oriana's just said, I'll give a couple examples. You know, in our competition with China in over uh, you know international bodies, for example, the United Nations and multilateral lending institutions and so forth. We, we, are, we are often losing uh, ground to China in terms of influence over those organizations, not because China's putting in more money, but because they're uh, using uh, sometimes corruption, but also they're just showing up. They're, they're, they're putting people into key jobs, if not at the top of, of an organization, then they put them into the, uh, the, the personnel department where they can, they can bring uh, Communist Party members in to, to uh, work in those organizations or the IT department where they ask Huawei to rebuild the whole IT system so they can spy on everyone working in those organizations or in the uh, general counsel's office so they can block uh, investigations and in, in, inspector general investigations into corruption. So just to give you a pretty pointed example, the World Bank, which is you know down the street from the White House, it, it, it's, it's always had an executive director who's an American. We're the largest contributor of money to the World Bank. Up until at least a few years ago, if not to the present day, China was the number one borrower uh, from the World Bank uh, of these low interest loans. But even more galling than that, every dollar that the World Bank lent around the world, 39 cents went to Chinese state-owned enterprises to be the, to be the uh, uh, company's that were the contractors doing the construction. American companies got 0.4% of that, a hundredth of of the amount. So one thing we could do for starters is work smarter, not harder in our own institutions and and other institutions that we crafted in the wake of World War II. Uh, We should not permit state-owned enterprises to bid for, uh, for contracts unless it's in their home country. Uh, you know, there's a lot that we can do. We should fight not just for the director's job, but for the IT department, the personnel department, the, the deputy director, the lawyers who work in those buildings, and bring some common sense uh, value back and values back to those organizations. Thank you. I'd like to pivot now to some questions from the audience in the re- remaining time that we have. And one comes from our colleague here at Hoover, Karis Templeman, who asks, So much of the analysis that goes into where China is today and where it's going tomorrow is dependent on one man, Xi Jinping. We've spoken a lot about the assumption that he'll take a third term and possibly be general secretary for life. But what if he were to drop dead tomorrow? How much is our analysis of of China contingent on one man? Look, Karis, it's a it's a great question, right? I mean, we 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 know enough now. We're, We're less naive than we were. Uh, and, and I don't say that in a mean way. I was among those uh, who in the 1990s thought that China was going to, going to uh, there's a good chance that China would become more liberal first in its markets, hopefully uh, uh, socially as it did do to an extent, and even someday politically. Uh, we, we know that the party has a way of um, uh, clawing back control whenever it thinks it can get away with it. Um, I, I think that the departure of Xi would be an extremely disruptive event, a real discontinuity uh, for, for certainly a period of time where you would, you would see a, a real change in, in um, uh, probably in, in the level of ambition 
and coherence as the party would have to um, try to try to figure out its new narrative and where where it's going to go. But the the overarching objectives, even between Deng and Xi Jinping, that you know Xi is basically buried Deng. He's 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 he he barely even gives lip service to reform and opening. Uh, unless it's highly qualified when he mentions reform and opening. He's basically put, put him well below Mao, and now he's elevating himself to Mao's level or higher. So, um, but even, even Deng Xiaoping said, we will never have one trace of parliamentary democracy in this system. Uh, so th there, there are certain threads that run through the whole history, the whole hundred year bloody history of the Communist Party that I don't think would necessarily be snipped with the departure of C. I agree, I agree with that assessment. I think there's sort of two components to that question. The one is just if something really disruptive happens within the party, right? So I think it's different. Like she, you know, let's just say in an alternative universe, she didn't become the leader of China versus like she drops dead. I think in general, most China specialists expect if there are severe problems with party control for whatever reason that China would turn, that, that aren't caused explicitly and obviously by foreign powers, that China turns inward and it's probably, you know, I don't think they have a history of or strategic thinking about kind of diversionary practices in that way. I think they want to make sure no one's on the streets, even if it's in support of the party during that period and they buckle down and they, they figure their stuff out before they go out in the world. But I think the second sort of component of this question is like how much is the agenda driven by Xi? I think Xi is a product of the system. You know, I think, you know, a lot of Chinese people were unhappy with Hu Jintao, who they saw as too cautious. Uh, the speech that was given to the Americans at Alaska of like, we want to let you know that you are no longer in a strong enough position to tell us what to do. I think that sentiment and the Communist Party's legitimacy attached to the standing up to foreigners goes far beyond Xi Jinping and, and would, you know, as long as they have the capabilities continue after Xi Jinping. The big question for history, I guess, is did Xi Jinping become aggressive too early? You know, I, I still, you know, ever, it's, I think we don't know yet. At some point, there's a ceiling to how powerful China, China can be without directly taking on the United States. And in all of Chinese strategic thinking, they wanted to delay that as long as possible, right? Get as powerful as you can before that type of confrontational era begins. Did they get the timing right? or not. And I will just say that the majority throughout history, since the 16th century, the majority of rising powers overtake the established great power, sometimes peacefully, sometimes during war, but it's kind of like a half and half situation. So I think it's still yet to be seen whether or not, you know, Xi Jinping made the right call. I'd like to believe he didn't. And he came out a bit too soon and a bit too hard. And now in the United States, we've gotten our act together and, you know, we're serious about competing. Um, but then every once in a while, you know, things happen in government. I'm just like, no one is taking this seriously. Right. Just like Matt said, no one read that speech. Like, come on guys, you know, this is, this is really serious. So I think, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that China has a great power image of itself. It's always wanted to return to be the dominant country in Asia. And Xi Jinping has just been the man who's been at the tail end of when they now have the power and capabilities to achieve that. The next question concerns our ability, and I think, Rihanna, you touched on this earlier, our capacity and ability to manage two geopolitical crises or a two-front war at the same time on opposite sides of the globe. 
to what extent is the alignment between Russia and China today merely opportunistic or substantively deep? What are your assessments? And what does it mean for the United States? Well, you know, Glenn, the, the first part of the question, um, I think it is really important. And, and Oriana alluded to this through her comments. She talked about how Taiwan really needs to be the focus. I agree. We, we have to prioritize and we have to rely on, on allies. Really, our most creative diplomacy needs to be in the areas that are slightly below the top priority. That's where you need the, the most, uh, you need to be able to delegate to really talented people uh, to work with the tools that they have to keep some of these things out of the president's inbox, or at least to limit the amount of time that they're in the president's inbox. Because um, you know it, it is hard to walk and chew gum. It turns out in a democracy. At the same time, you know, it, it's FDR was able to juggle uh, two fronts in a global war. I I, I, I don't um, see it happening easily again. Uh, so uh, that's where we should be devoting the most creative efforts. Now, for the depth of that relationship, what's really interesting about uh, some of the dynamics between the Russia China. Uh, a honeymoon here, or whatever you want to call it, it's very much between the two leaders. The two leaders see an opportunity. They, in some cases, they see no choice, and more, more in the Putin's uh, uh, case, uh, given that Russia really is clearly the junior partner in this, uh, in this arrangement. But if you talk to people deeper down in both systems, there's an enormous amount of latent suspicion. There is a sense that uh, history looms large. Uh, you know, I, I've got a map on my wall downstairs of, of uh, uh, a couple of different maps of the ways that the borders between uh, Russia and China have changed uh, over the centuries. And uh, uh, people don't forget, and people in those bureaucracies don't forget uh, the land that was once theirs. They're both inherently revanchist uh, uh, empires. And, and, and they're also neighbors with a really long border. So I, I don't discount, I think that they are uh, in some kind of harmonic resonance right now strategically, but, um, but it is very much top down. So I just, I mean, I wouldn't say finish. I worked on this study for like a year and a half that then I'm like, I have to rewrite, so I haven't done it yet, about this China-Russia military relationship, trying to make sense of it, put together a data set of basically every exercise they've done, every consultation they've had, every meeting to be like, what is going on? Um, and I'll save you guys all the year and a half and say, you know, the, my bottom line assessment is these two countries are deeply aligned, but for a very limited scope, which is to help China challenge the United States and Asia. It does not extend to China helping Russia with its goals in Europe and helping does not necessarily mean like that these two countries are going to fight a war together against the United States. Actually, you know, great powers. We always think about alliances the way the United States is with our more junior partners. So a lot of people when they're trying to measure this, they're like, well, they host a new, you know, do the Russians allow the Chinese to have a base in Russia? Or is there a command structure in which Russians are in charge of Chinese troops? Like great powers don't do stuff like that. <laughs> like generally speaking, they, they, because they can protect themselves by definition, they like autonomy. So I don't think those are the right metrics, but you can look at based on their exercises and activities, what they seem to plan on doing. And it seems at the very least, the Russians plan on providing China with a political and logistical support in a time of conflict, maybe something like, you know, gray zone alliance politics in which they, they can say like, oh, we're not, you know, we're not friends of China. But at the same time, 
the United States can't cut off oil and other supplies to China because the Russians are providing it even in the face of pressures for sanctions. Russia and China, their defense industries are becoming mutually enforcing as they engage in more, more joint development together, such that the Russians are in a position to, to actually produce equipment and weapons for the Chinese. So if we're in a protracted conflict, I think Russia can serve as the strategic rear to China, providing the munitions, logistical support, political coverage that would, and because of escalation dynamics, the United States would be very reluctant to attack those kind of Russian supply chains, even missile defense, if they do that together, or if the Russians say, you know, this isn't to support China, this is just to protect our northern flank, we're closing off the airspace around the Korean Peninsula and we're patrolling it. All of that makes it extremely difficult for the United States to prevail in a Taiwan conflict. So these two countries don't have to fight side by side together for the Russians to create some significant operational obstacles just by you know, a modicum of support. And I think given the relationship and given what the Russians have said about China's position, especially on Taiwan and in other territorial disputes, I think that type of support is likely to be forthcoming. Thank you, Madam Oriana. We've come up on time and I wanna be respectful of our audience. So although there are many good questions that still remain to be answered, I encourage you to come back to us for future events and I'll turn the floor back over to Larry. Uh, thank you, uh, Glenn. I do want to uh, tell our audience that it is my practice to uh, send the questions to our speakers so they'll at least know uh, what was asked and can incorporate it uh, into their thinking. I want to uh, thank uh, George Soros for his opening remarks. I want to thank Matt Pottinger and Oriana Schuyler Mastro for this absolutely fascinating uh, and deeply uh, uh, stimulating and informative discussion that we've had in the last hour. I want to thank uh, Glenn Tifford and Orville Schell for joining in, Janet Smith and her team at the Hoover Institution uh, for their uh, support of this event. Uh, and most of all, I want to thank all of you in the audience for joining us. Uh, that closes our session uh, today, and uh, we look forward to having you back another time. Thank you so much. <laughs>